Greetings and salutations, our loyal listeners. I think we can put it in the plural even now. Listeners, we're glad to have you back with us on Life and Books and Everything. We have the band back together. Justin Taylor, Colin Hansen, and I am Kevin DeYoung. Good to have you with us. We also have a special guest interview with a great new book out. We will be introducing him in just a moment, but let me thank, as always, our sponsor, Crossway. They put out lots of good books, including the one that we're going to be talking about today. I have neglected to mention that you should look at crossway.org slash LBE, as in life and books and everything. We want to get those letters correct. Crossway slash LBE. And if you go on there, Justin, you can sign up for some stuff and get some uh, discounts. I think that's the exact wording of the, the promo. <laughs> well, I'm not get an author. Stuff and get some discounts. Stuff yeah, and <laughs> discounts. It, it reminds me of that mo- most Midwestern of traits. You can never tell somebody you got something unless you also tell them how much of a discount <laughs> yeah, you got that's... on it. So you sign up for Crossway Plus through as listeners of Life and Books and Everything, and I believe you get 30% off books. Isn't that the idea through that program? Yes, Kevin? that is the idea, I believe. And you're right. I remember when we moved to Iowa in particular, everyone – especially if they had a nice house. Well, oh, wow, that's a great house. Yeah, uh, crazy story. We got this thing (laughs) dirt cheap. It was, you know, someone died in it or something. Just everyone was getting a great deal. You'd rather be cheap than look like you're uh, avarice. All right, so what, oh, our book. We want to mention a Crossway book. Covenant Theology, Biblical, Theological, and Historical Perspectives. Uh, This is a big volume of wonderful essays and chapters from the faculty at Reformed Theological Seminary. I have a smallish chapter. It is the least among the chapters. It's not false humility. There are really good as it says, Biblical Theological Historical Perspectives on Covenant Theology. If you think you know a ton about Covenant Theology, I'm sure you can learn something from this book. If you don't know anything, there will be some chapters here that will help you begin to learn something about it. And one of the contributors in this book on Covenant Theology, published by Crossway, is our special guest for today, Scott Swain. Scott, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I I did not do my adequate research to list all of your many titles, but you're president of something and professor of stuff and junk and written a lot of books. So Scott, no, he's uh, the president at RTS Orlando and teaches systematic theology there and has authored a number of really good books. And we're going to talk about his book, The Trinity, today. But Scott, give us a little bit of introduction about yourself, where you're from, what you do. Tell us about your family as well. Yeah, thanks. Um, been married to my wife, Lee, for now just over 23 years, and we have four kids ranging from age 20. I've got a, a second-year college student down to 13 and uh, they keep us very busy and bring us a lot of joy. And my day job is to uh, work and teach at RTS Orlando and love doing that. And what do you teach there as well as presidenting? I teach systematic theology. Same subject as you. Yeah, I've listened to yours are on the RTS app. Mine are not. So I can crib off of yours. Hmm. We'll have to change that. Do you do you are you from Florida? Do you like the weather in Orlando? Do you like Orlando? It seems like almost I, everyone I know who lives in Orlando wishes they didn't live in Orlando. Kevin, that that's a terrible thing for you to say. I, Sign up for RTS Orlando, please. everybody. Oh my goodness, it's just like 
bold-faced <laughs> RTS Charlotte recruiting. I, I didn't come here for this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, which is a, a couple of hours north of here. Yeah. Um, and it is surprisingly a, a different um, kind of seasonal and everything else. My dad used to say it's really South Georgia. But you get to Orlando, you're truly in Central Florida. We're surrounded by uh, lakes and alligators, and you make the wrong turn, you could be uh, facing either one of those. Um, but no, it's a wonderful place to live, Kevin. And I'm, I'm told that anyone who visits wants to stay here forever. It's Some call it the most uh, wonderful place on earth, the most magical place on earth or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm truly offended. I didn't realize we were going this way. I thought this was going to be kind of a peaceful, friendly interaction today. Uh, no, I, let me let me let me try a better question. There, Scott, I, Orlando's changed a lot in the last twenty years. It used to be known very much as a Christian capital. So many headquarters yep. of Christian ministries there. Um, Campus Crusade for Christ being being one of them. Ligonier. I mean, you could you could keep keep naming them. But it's become a very progressive international yep. city, I think, in the last 20 years or so. Can you describe how that's happened, maybe how that's affected your ministry at RTS Orlando? Yeah, I think that's right. It's uh, it's one of the fastest growing cities. Um, we've got, I think, what is now the largest university with UCF here, and that's uh, promoted a lot of the growth here. Uh, probably says something about it becoming an international city. Um I, I do think Florida is kind of a funny state. The further south you go, probably the more international you get. And so in many ways, Orlando is more like a Chicago, more like, you know, L.A. or New York or whatever than it is a Jacksonville where I grew up. And so um, a lot of people come and go. Um, you, you know, meet people at church, people meet people out in the workplace. And there are very few people who were born here. Um, sometimes very few people who've been here more than 10 years. And just to be clear, I, I wasn't meaning to throw the, the hammer down. I was thinking mainly about the weather that it seems like I often being from Michigan. Here's what I'm getting being from Michigan. Orlando was always where you wanted to go. Great weather. Right. You go That's there, it's right. warm. And then I would meet people from there. Uh, they say, Oh, it's, it's humid all the time and those seasons never change. And I thought, well, at least, at least you got a good season sort of. Yeah, that's right. All, all of our little, you know, sub communities are winter park, winter garden named by Midwesterners who wanted to move down here because they liked it so much better than living in the Midwest, Kevin. Well, you could just kind of stop in Charlotte halfway, I guess. All right. Uh, Scott, the Trinity. This really is uh, a great series that I'm sure Justin had his hand in, and this is a great contribution to it. Short Studies in Systematic Theology, edited by Graham Cole and Oren Martin. And this is Scott's new volume that just came out, The Trinity and Introduction. I want to start with this. Okay, I have two questions before we dive into the book, and we'll see if what Colin and Justin want to, want to ask at the outset. Here's my first question. Uh, say I'm 10 years old. Scott, explain the Trinity to me. Yeah, well, I think uh, for a 10-year-old, the, the best way to explain it is in the, the songs that we sing, right? We praise one God from whom all blessings flow, all creatures in heaven, earth, and under the earth. But in praising one God, we praise three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that doesn't give us three gods, and that's a great mystery how one god could be three distinct persons and not being three gods, but we can't expect to understand the mystery. We adore it. Um, so our songs, our catechisms, the, the baptismal command of Matthew 28, 19, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are all very good places to, to start with a 10-year-old. That's good. So is this is my second question then. Is there an, an analogy you would use with a 10-year-old a for the Trinity? No. Um, I think all analogies uh, end up kind of becoming good analogies for Trinitarian heresies, right? right. So uh, we either end up thinking of the persons as maybe being three different phases 
of God's life, like ice, water, vapor, or we end up thinking of the, the three persons as different parts of a whole. And, and thanks to the cartoon Voltron, we can yeah. now um, explain what that heresy is. But the problem with all the analogies, right, is that we're using things with which we're very familiar in terms of creaturely reality. And we're trying to uh, describe a God who transcends creatures. And, and that's where we, we get uh, into problems. We are made in God's image, but God is not made in ours. That's good. So, I mean, we find this all the time in well-meaning churches and Sunday schools. Teachers want to help kids get it. And so they go to, you know, clovers or water ice vapor or an apple, parts of an apple. And it, it it's just important to say, just stay away from the analogies. Um, yeah. Justin, unless, did we miss an analogy that, that you use? Well, Scott, did Augustine get us off on the wrong foot with uh, Trinitarian analogies? What what was he doing in his great work on the Trinity where he's thinking of psychological analogies to try to explain it? Yeah, that's was a that great question. No, I, I don't think so. And, and if we, and sometimes Augustine gets kind of a bad rap on this, but you know, the the first major sections of Augustine's book on the Trinity are devoted to exegetical arguments for the Trinity, to talking about Jesus' baptism and how that is a, a revelation of the Trinity. And only towards the end of that work does he then say, well, we're made in the image of the Trinity. Are there vestiges of the Trinity in the human soul, for example? And he, he does play around with those, but he actually concludes his argument saying none of these really work. There's not a good one-to-one -one correspondence. And so uh, Augustine ends, uh, as I said earlier, with just praising the triune God um, for revealing himself to us. Justin, you had a good uh, church history question that you mentioned earlier that would get us going into perhaps the reason Scott wrote this book or one of them. Yeah, what do you think about uh, 20th century evangelicalism when it comes to the Trinity? What were some maybe good contributions that were made in the 20th century, obviously extending into the 21st century, and perhaps what were some of the missteps that uh, got us off course? Was it a was it a good century? We, we tend to assume each century is building upon the knowledge of previous generations, and we're increasing our knowledge. Is that the case with Trinitarianism, or was, not, was it not a great century for that doctrine? Uh, great question. Yeah, I mean, so the 20th century, in terms of broader academic theology was a time of trying to revive the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Karl Rahner, who is a Catholic theologian, described, uh, I think, what is probably true of many Christians as mere monotheists. They knew it was important to affirm that God was a Trinity, but they had no idea of, of the practical meaning of the doctrine. And so following that kind of insight, uh, Rahner... Bart and others wanted to restore the importance of the Trinity for theology, for piety, and a number of evangelicals uh, followed as well. And I think there are some kind of positive examples in that regard. Um, Packer's Knowing God has some very rich, uh, I think, Trinitarian reflections, especially talking about adoption and so forth. Uh, R.C. Sproul actually wrote something of a Trinitarian trilogy with the holiness of God and then a work on Christology and pneumatology. Um, I read those early on in seminary, got really excited uh, about things. And so there's some uh, positive signs. There were probably some not so positive developments as well. As well. And um, those are not necessarily unique to evangelical theology, but in all the excitement about kind of reviving Trinitarian theology, one of the things that theologians wanted to do was demonstrate its relevance for every area of life. And <clears throat> kind of late 20th century evangelical theologians uh, found themselves often trying to show the relevance of the Trinity for certain issues related to anthropology, so uh, gender debates. And uh, I remember, especially in the, the 90s, uh, 
conversations got really hot with uh, different sides of evangelicalism debating certain gender issues and bringing the Trinity into those debates. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes the way the Trinity was used in those debates pretty radically distorted the doctrine um, and in some ways left us with a kind of problematic approach to the Trinity in a number of our churches. So that leads into the beginning of your book. You say in the acknowledgments, the proximate cause for the book is the Trinitarian controversy of 2016. Now, I've read the whole book, and I mean, that's explicit in a few places, but it's certainly not. I mean, it's just a broad, it's a great book about the Trinity, but that's the proximate cause. Can you explain for our listeners, what was the Trinitarian controversy of 2016 and how that served as approximate cause for the book? Yeah, sure. So one of the views of the Trinity that came out of the, the gender debates was a view uh, specifically about the Son, but implications for the Spirit as well. It's a view that sometimes goes under the label uh, eternal functional subordination, or I think the more preferred title by its exponent. Uh, exponents is eternal relations of authority and submission. And that view of the Trinity is when we talk about the Trinity, we have to talk about God as one God, but we also have to talk about God as three distinct persons. And the question is, how do we distinguish those persons? And so according to this view, the way we distinguish the persons is that certain persons stand in a relationship of authority to other persons. And corresponding to that, those other persons stand in a relationship of subordination or submission uh, to those persons. And the argument was, is not that they're ontologically uh, inferior. So there's definitely a desire to avoid um, Arianism, but the argument is that the way they are distinguished personally from each other is by these relations of authority and submission. And I think what happened in 2016 was uh, several folks started to say, well, hey, um, I think that might be problematic in a number of ways. Uh, it seems like, for one thing, that's not how the church historically has distinguished the persons from each other. And secondly, the reason they didn't distinguish them that way is because distinguishing them from each other in that way seems to divide the Godhead in a way that is problematic. Because if you have a person who's in authority Another person who submits, it suggests perhaps that they have different wills. And historically, the church has confessed one will in God, one power, one wisdom, one goodness, and so forth. And so a few people started kind of ringing the bell on that. And, and I think that evangelical Christians as a whole kind of realized we might have some work to do in terms of this doctrine. Colin. It's probably, well, I know that it's not fair, Scott, for me to ask you to explain how this broke down along Baptist and Presbyterian lines, because I don't think it'd be fair to all Baptists to say that they necessarily agreed with eternal functional subordinationism. But could you talk perhaps about some of the distinguishing theological methodologies that may have led to some of that dispute along the lines of Presbyterian critiques and Baptist advocacy of eternal functional subordinationism. Yeah, um, yeah, I would be really reticent to to distinguish the sides along denominational lines because I do think you could find proponents of uh, eternal functional board, functional subordination on on both sides. I think you could find uh, proponents of what is sometimes called pro Nicene Trinitarianism on both sides as well. I think one of the telling uh, distinctions. And Christopher Cleveland wrote a, an article about this, and I think he was dead on. One place you could find the difference is almost generationally in terms of uh, when somebody got their theological training. Um, and there was perhaps a tendency toward a, a biblicism in Trinitarian theology among advocates of eternal functional subordination. And there, among those who were opposing it, there is probably more of a sense of not only, yes, is scripture the supreme source and norm for Trinitarian theology, 
but there was probably a greater appreciation and a greater uh, desire to uh, recognize that we're not the first ones who've read scripture when it comes to this doctrine, and that because it's such a, a great and profound doctrine, that we want to be patient and listen to what the church has said and confessed about this doctrine um, in attempting to understand scripture. And so there, there was a little bit of a generational divide, and, and I think that it breaks down almost into theological training and, yes, theological method. I, I find – oh, go ahead, Justin. I was just going to ask, I'm thinking of some listeners who may not have gone to seminary or that the word biblicism may be a new word for them or it may be confusing. Um, you don't mean biblical, but what is biblicism? And is that an over-reliance on exegesis or is it reading into scripture? What do you mean exactly by that? Yeah, biblicism is, is, is something that's sometimes hard to define and, and is hard to debate. But one way I, w- I would say is like this, if, if I, without defining it, let me put the issue like this. The debate in 2016 was not about whether our Trinitarian theology needs to be derived from Scripture. It's not a debate about whether it needs to be normed by Scripture. But there was probably debate about a relative degree of confidence about whether the best method for deriving the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture is me and my Bible, me as a, maybe a well-trained scholar with a PhD who's taking Greek and Hebrew, or is it me within the context of the communion of saints, me with a, a, a kind of a, an ear to the tradition, a, attention to the church's creeds and confessions, and deriving my doctrine from Scripture with those aids um, ready to hand. And so... Both sides are saying, absolutely, our doctrine must be derived from Scripture. But I think there is a relative degree of, of, you know, what weight do we give to our own individual powers of interpretation? Um, What degree of deference do we give to the church and its tradition? That's a really good point, because we often in, in, maybe I'm tipping my hand here, talking to another systematic theology professor, and we affirm all, you know all the appropriate disciplines, but one of the things that systematic theology can do to help us is provide us with the church's historic grammar and vocabulary for discussing these things. And so, I, I sometimes start in teaching the Trinity on just laying out from Scripture seven very simple biblical conclusions. There's one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. You, you, you make those seven statements and say, okay, now the grammar that we learn from the best of the history of the church is not an imposition of philosophical categories. Yes, it has its own philosophical uh, grammar and origin, but it's to help us safeguard each one of those seven statements in relation to the other one which is why we talk about some of these seemingly heady or esoteric topics, which are really to protect our worship and our orthodoxy. And I really appreciate in the book, you start chapter one is the Bible and Trinity, the basic grammar. And then in the back, you have a glossary, which is a great way to look up about a a dozen different terms. So if the reader is saying, now, wait a minute, I'm hearing that again, paternity, personal property. What is Scott talking about? You have a paragraph or so in the back. It's really helpful. One of the phrases that you've already mentioned, so I just want you to define it and unpack it a little bit, is relations of origin. Because you said uh, that throughout history, and you can trace this certainly in the Reformed tradition, but even before that, in distinguishing among the persons of the Trinity— they are distinguished by their relations of origin. What does that mean? Why is that important? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you think back to Matthew 28, 19, we baptize into the name singular, but it's a name that belongs to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Well, relations of origin is just an attempt to describe what those personal names mean. So. The first person is father to the son. The second person is son of the father. 
the third person is spirit of the Father and the Son. And in each case, I'm saying of, 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 right? Uh, the Son is somehow of the Father. He originates from the Father. That's who he is. The Spirit is somehow of the Father and of the Son. And, and that is who he is. The Father is not of anyone. And so at, at the end of the day, it's a very basic point, but Trinitarian theology is about saying, okay, well, what does that mean? Or more, more likely, what does it not mean? Um, and making sure to, to piggyback on the point you just made, orthodoxy oftentimes is about just making sure we're taking into account everything Scripture says on these things. And really, heresy is sometimes about latching onto one of the truths, right, rather than letting the whole counsel of God inform and so relations of origin, yeah, they describe how the persons are distinct from each other. Uh, eternal generation is uh, sometimes the fancier way of describing the son's distinct personhood, the idea that the son is eternal and that he exists personally, eternally from the father. And we can say the same thing about the spirit, his eternal procession from the father and the son. Would you say... Is there a distinction to be made between the language relations of origin and the language of intra-Trinitarian relationships? Is, and if so, is one safer than the other? I mean, relations is probably safer than the relationships. The, the, the trick is there really are no terms of art in theology in the sense that if you define something the right way, yeah, there are many terms that can become legitimate, including relationships. But I think what, what relations is less prone to do than relationships is not to present to us a picture of the three persons of the Trinity as three independent human beings who like to hang out together and, and perhaps, uh, each do their own different part in creation and salvation. Um, you know, you three have this podcast relationship where, you know, Justin doesn't get to say very much because Kevin usually speaks over him, uh, things like that. You know, we shouldn't think of Trinity in that way. So all of, well, all is maybe not the right word, but the, the payoff that people often want from the Trinity is something about, uh, the, the diversity of human relationships reflects the diversity of persons in the Godhead or this great mysterious dance or we're relational beings because God exists in relationship. Probably all of that can be helpful and unhelpful. You want to parse out how you think of that? Yeah, it's interesting. When you look at the way Scripture relates the Trinity to us— um, in almost every case, the relationship is filtered through Christology. Hmm. And so you think about marriage, right? It's not just strictly father-son relationship that usually is in view. It's the son's relationship to the church is a model for the husband's relationship with the wife and so forth. And, and that does a, a, a couple of things. One, it means, well, we can't read the Trinity straight off of Christology. Because Jesus, while he is the second person of the Trinity, he's also a human being, and he's engaged in the work of redemption, and, 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 and not everything that he's engaged in in the work of redemption says something about God's eternal nature, at least not in a direct way. Uh, but then also, because of his humanity, there, there's going to be many things that accompany his person and work, which say something about us as human beings, not something about uh, the Godhead. And so, yes, there, there are applications that we can make, but they might be there in a way that is more indirect, um, no less rich, no less wonderful. Um, but, but we have to kind of be patient. We have to listen to Scripture. We have to follow the way it describes these things. So social Trinitarianism... What is that, the development of it, and is it to be embraced, or is it a danger? Yeah, uh, social Trinitarianism is not to be embraced. Social Trinitarianism is an approach to the Trinity that became popular, again, late 20th century, 
after this initial revival of interest in the Trinity. And social Trinitarianism is essentially a way of viewing the persons of the Trinity as very, very analogous to human persons. Uh, in some cases, having independent self-consciousness, independent will, the unity of the Godhead on this view becomes very similar to the unity of the human race. We say the persons are the same kind of being, but there, we, there's less comfort with saying they're the same being. Um, and, and yeah, the worry about social Trinitarianism is that essentially we're, we're, we're modeling the divine persons after the pattern of human persons rather than going in the reverse direction, which is what I think scripture requires us to do. Um, it's certainly what lies behind a lot of the, the approaches to eternal functional subordination that we were describing earlier. There's definitely kind of a social Trinitarian approach there. The worry is that it compromises things like divine simplicity, um, the idea that God is not composed of parts, that God is one in every way in his being and his mind, his will, his power, and so forth. Social Trinitarianism, it kind of sounds like, if not three beings, uh, three minds, three wills. And yeah, and at the end of the day, it, it's, it's, it's really hard to see how social Trinitarianism is preserving what both Old Testament and New Testament treat as the fundamental principle of theology, that the Lord is one. Hmm. That's well said. Colin? Scott, we it seems to be a standard part of evangelical discourse, broadly speaking, about the Trinity, that one person, namely the Spirit, has been forgotten. So you think about Francis Chan's book from a few years ago, Forgotten God. But I really appreciated what you did in this book to explain some of the biblical evidence of who we know the Spirit to be, of why that might be the case. Could you explain a little bit of why we seem to often forget the Spirit in relation to his particular role within the Trinity? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I hear that um, objection a lot. And while there is something to it, I, I also I think it's a bit exaggerated. Uh, sometimes it just means, you know, we like the way this group over here talks about the Holy Spirit, and you're not talking about the Holy Spirit the way this group is, therefore you don't care about the Holy Spirit. Whereas if you actually attend to the way this other tradition uh, treats the Trinity, you say, oh, actually, there's a lot there about the Holy Spirit. It's just they're not talking about the Spirit in the way this group is, and they see the Spirit's work in our lives and in our ministries in a different way. I think that there is something uh, historical and theological, though, that is behind this kind of common observation. Historically, uh, the person of the Spirit was a subject of later controversy in the kind of development of Trinitarian doctrine, and never the source of as intense controversy as was debate regarding the person of the Son. Right, So we've got several centuries of, of just heated debate about the person of the Son. And while there are debates about the Spirit, um, they're, they're definitely they're not as extended and they're not as intense. And so um, there's something about the, the nature of the church's need to defend the deity of the Son that has given the second person a place of prominence in theology um, that the Spirit has perhaps not enjoyed. But Theologically, and this is where I wouldn't want to even put too much weight on the historical point, there is something about the, the Spirit's mission that is going to, uh, may we say, deflect from emphasis on his work. Um, Jesus says in the farewell discourse that the Spirit, when, when he sends the Spirit, the Spirit's mission will be to glorify the Son. To, to cause the Son to be acknowledged in his person and in his work and in his glory. And so what that suggests is when the Spirit's active, Jesus will be magnified. Jesus' name will be glorified. And so uh, there's something maybe counterintuitive about this, but uh, the more attention that's given to the Son, 
we might say the more reason we have for believing that the Spirit is active in causing the Word to be uh, received and confessed by His people. That's great. Uh, follow up on that, Scott. Years ago, closer to your neck of the woods, I was studying the so-called Lakeland Revival, and rather typical among charismatic movements, but there was a lot of emphasis about recovering the work of the Spirit. But I noticed that it was utterly detached from any biblical evidence about the Spirit, and certainly detached from the specific biblical evidence of the Spirit's role to be able to point to the Son. In fact, there was very little reference to the finished work of Christ or even to Jesus himself. Is that fairly typical for what you see of, of problems, or was that a standout incident? No, I think that's true, um, and, and and a number of the, the kind of uh, big I don't know how to describe them, but the revivalistic charismatic movements we see in the last 20 years where you have this kind of language of uh, a new age of the spirit, a new work of the spirit, you see a similar thing, right? Uh, the Bible often gets short shrift and the finished work of Christ, the present reign of Christ, uh, these are not things that are as front and center. And and the danger, of course, and this is where relations of origin becomes uh, so helpful in a very practical context, Right. The spirit that the Bible talks about is the spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son and who, who, who from all eternity is the, 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 the crowning glory that the Father gives to the Son and in time is the, is the one who crowns the Son in our hearts. And so other spirits, and the Bible acknowledges the existence of other spirits, uh, there may be other spirits who, 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 who can even perform miraculous signs. Um, but if those spirits are not drawing our attention to the glory of Christ and to his finished work, then we should raise our eyebrows um, because they may not be the Holy Spirit. They may not be the spirit of the Father and the Son. Yeah, there's a great quote from J.I. Packer's Keeping in Step with the Spirit where he talks about uh, walking in the evening and seeing floodlights illuminating a church building and thinking that that's a perfect illustration of the Spirit's role, that the the point of a floodlight is never to say, look at me, uh, observe me, what a great job I'm doing, but it's always to cast the light upon uh, its object and for the Spirit mm -hmm. to, to continually be saying, look at him, look at his glory, listen to him, listen to his word. I, that's a, a memorable Packer illustration that's always stuck with me. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and you think of the, the language Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If, if, if the Spirit stands out in the work of redemption, in bringing us into fellowship with the Father and the Son, then again, His activity is going to be about highlighting the, the fellowship that we have with the other persons of the Trinity. It's not going to be isolated uh, from the knowledge and, and from the faith and obedience of these other persons. Scott, you're a teacher, a very good teacher. I'm going to just mention some terms and uh, we're going to go quickly. You can do these in a sentence or two. Just somebody who's listening and trying to understand, especially some of the systematic theology terms and categories. So here's uh, in your chapter on God the Father, the basic grammar. You distinguish between common predication. A predicate is what, what can be said of something. So common predication, you say, refers to what the three persons hold in common. And then proper predication refers to what each person of the Trinity holds holds in distinction from the other two. So give us, what, what are some of the common predicates and the proper predicates for the persons of the Trinity? Yeah, so uh, common predicates of the Trinity, the divine name itself. So all three persons are described in Scripture as Yahweh, the Lord. Um, when we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name there is likely a, a kind of reference to God's proper name. Uh, all three persons are given the title God and our God. Uh, all three persons are described in terms of various divine attributes, various divine actions of creation, redemption, 
And 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 that's actually one of the things I think folks are are are, are most commonly miss in, in thinking about the Trinity. It's like, okay, I understand the Trinity. The Father creates, the Son redeems, the Spirit sanctifies. But actually, Scripture ascribes creation to all three persons. It ascribes redemption to all three persons. It ascribes sanctification to all three persons. Uh, in terms of personal uh, predicates or, or, or personal properties, the, the personal names themselves, Father, Son, Spirit, generally are used... Um, distinctly of the persons, although the second person is described as everlasting father in Isaiah, but I don't think that's describing him in terms of his distinct personhood. I think that's describing him as the author of time, and in that sense, that's a common predication. Um, but other distinct titles, uh, the son is also described as the word. You think of John 1, He's described as the image of God in Colossians 1. He's described as the radiance of God's glory. And then the Spirit is, is described in a number of, of different ways as well um, to emphasize his distinct personhood. So uh, inseparable operations is a key term. You just yes. alluded to it there that all three persons work inseparably in their external operations. So help us understand that because on the face of it, someone's going to say, well, wait a minute, the, the father didn't die on the cross. The, the son didn't descend uh, as a dove at his own baptism. How can you say that they're all three doing the same thing all the time? What do we mean by inseparable operations and how does that really work biblically? Yeah. So inseparable operations is just an application of biblical monotheism to the question of how the one God acts. And so because God is one, God exercises one divine power, one divine wisdom, one divine goodness in all that he does. And so this doesn't take away the distinction of the persons, but what it says is uh, the distinction between the persons is the distinction we see within God's singular operations, not between different operations. So for example, creation is the work of the one God. How does the one God create? Well, the Father speaks the world into existence through his word and by his spirit, right? So Psalm 33, uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. So one divine work, but we see the three persons operative in it. So help us understand, and then I'll throw it back to these guys, but uh, whenever you talk about the Trinity, people sometimes get nervous. Like, if I say anything more than one God, three persons, I'm probably saying a heresy, and uh, then I'm going to be condemned. Uh, well, w there's a difference between someone uninformed or not quite taught all the distinctions slipping up. So we don't want people to be so fearful about the right. doctrine of the Trinity and someone who sees what's at stake and then affirms something that the church has found to be heretical. But tell us what modalism is, what's the problem with it, and subordinationism, and what's the problem? Yeah, so modalism affirms that God is one but it cannot affirm a real distinction between the persons. So it, it affirms merely kind of a superficial distinction. We, we do see different persons in the work of redemption, but those are just different phases of God's life. They're not really distinct persons. Water, Perhaps, ice, vapor? Water, ice, vapor is, is modalism. Yes. And then what was the second? Subordinationism. Uh, subordinationism. Uh, in the strict sense of Arianism, uh, Arius could affirm, Arius was a 4th century uh, heretic condemned by various church councils. Arius could affirm the existence of a trinity, and he uses the term trinity by which he means three distinct persons. But what Arius can't affirm is that the three distinct persons are one God. And specifically, he can't affirm that the Son is, to use the technical language, consubstantial with the Father. Um, he believes the Son was the first and most special creature of, the, of God, through whom God created and redeemed the rest of the world. Okay, last one. Talk about the distinction. And I don't remember if you did, you mentioned it here, but it wasn't a, a separate section that I recall between the economic trinity 
and the imminent trinity and how does that relate to our earlier discussion about eternal relations of authority and submission because i could i could imagine a listener saying well what's the big deal about authority and submission clearly the son says to the father not my will but yours be done he obeys the father but there's there's some important distinctions there with the eternal relations of authority and submission and how it relates to the inner life of the Trinity and the outworking of the Trinity's operations in time. So what's, what's the distinction there? Yeah. yeah. I actually don't think I use those terms in the book. And that, that's partly for reasons that would, would, would bore um, people to hear right now. That was a very popular way of talking about it in the 20th century, but I think it actually implied a certain way of distinguishing God between from God's acts, that's, that's not that helpful. But nevertheless, we do have to say there's a relationship between who God is and how God acts. And the clearest way we see it is the relations of origin that distinguish the three persons um, also shine forth in the way God reaches out specifically to save us. So uh, Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says that the fullness of time God sent forth his son. That sending language is uh, language we sometimes uh, use to describe the mission of the son. He was sent. And then it also says, after describing the son's incarnation, his work of redemption, and his acquiring the right of adoption, it says, and God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So there's two sendings, there's two missions. The Father sent the Son, and the Father and the Son sent the Spirit. Well, what Augustine argued, and really uh, majority of certainly Trinitarian uh, theology in the West argued, was that the missions of the persons in time, so the mission of the Son to become incarnate and redeem us, the mission of the Spirit to indwell us, to sanctify us, those missions reflect those eternal relations of origin. So as the Son is eternally from the Father, so in time he is sent by the Father to redeem us. As the Spirit is eternally from the Father and the Son, so in time he is sent by the Father and the Son to indwell us. And so uh, at the end of the day, for someone like Thomas Aquinas, those missions are about how the triune God embraces us in fellowship in his triune life. So the mission of the son is to do what? To make sons and daughters of the living God, making the son's father our father. The mission of the spirit is to, to enable us to express on our lips the same cry that Jesus had on his lips during the gospel, Abba, Father. And so the missions of the, of the son and the spirit both reflect the eternal relations of origin, but they also embrace us in some sense, within those relations. So you think the Latin phrases ad extra, ad intra are better than economic trinity and imminent trinity? I think so, because, the, the again, economic imminent can t sound like we're talking about two trinities. Mm -hmm. It can also sound like we're only talking about, for example, eternal generation when we're talking about the trinity before time, which, which is wrong. Right, in the son's temporal mission, we're seeing before our eyes, the eyes of faith at least, what it means for him to be the son of the father. And yes, that doesn't begin to be in time, but that is what's being presented to us. And so imminent and economic it doesn't quite capture the reality that the missions bring those very person-constituting person relations, if I can say it like this, that the missions bring those to us and present them to us. So when we hear the father at Jesus' baptism saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we're seeing something that's eternally true uh, of the Trinity. It's really good. We're gonna go to Colin, then to Justin, and then we're gonna talk about some books. Colin. I do, I do have something you can start to think about this, Scott. I would like to also hear in the end, the best Trinity songs mm. to sing. Uh, holy, 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 be a good one just as a layup there, but you can think about some other ones as well. Okay. Kind of a short question, but obviously a big topic. 
Did the biggest church split in all of history actually happen over a Trinitarian debate about the procession of the Spirit, whether from the Father or Father and the Son, or was there something else going on? Well, that certainly was the uh, presenting cause, I, I think, as a doctor would say. Uh, there were also some deeper issues in terms of uh, church polity related to uh, the Bishop of Rome and his authority. There was an issue related to kind of what we might call creedal integrity, um, whether a phrase should be added to the Nicene Creed or not, with the West saying, yeah, it's okay, we can update things, and the East saying, no, don't update things. Um, and so, but the presenting issue was whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father only or also from the Son, the West holding the latter view, the East holding the former view. In roughly the year 1000. Yes. Yeah. Filioque. Yes. All right. Good. That, that, that was a smart seminarian question, Colin. Way to represent <laughs> Trinity Evangelical <laughs> Divinity School, one of Scott's alma maters as well. <laughs> Justin? Yeah, Scott, I'm curious. Not, not everybody who's listening to this is uh, a pastor, but I assume we have at least a few pastors listening, and they may be hearing this conversation. Hopefully they're motivated to pick up your new book. Um, and to, to either get a refresher, to be corrected, to be challenged, to be instructed. But I can imagine somebody listening and feeling somewhat overwhelmed, all these terms. I mean, we haven't even talked about prosopological exegesis and relations of origin and active spiration versus passive spiration. Um, and feeling like, okay, number one, I need to get up, you know, either get refreshed in this, learn it myself. But secondly, I can imagine a feeling of uh, being frozen or a feeling of despair of how do I actually communicate this to my congregation? You know, blue collar folks, they've got busy jobs. They're anxious about COVID and about children. Do you have some suggestions of what a pastor should do in terms of leading a congregation to be more informed about Trinitarianism? Should they work it into their sermons? Should they uh, do catechesis in their church? Should they teach a special class on Sunday school? Should it be part of a larger program with systematic theology? Are there any suggestions that you have for pastors to help their people grow in their refinement and knowledge without necessarily having to go enroll at uh, RTS, though that would not be a bad thing? Yes. Yeah. Thanks. I think there are a lot of um, a lot of resources out there that can help us um, because the Trinity is central to our faith. Uh, historically, pastors have come up with a lot of wonderful tools to to help uh, our people to imbibe that reality. Um, and so, you mentioned catechisms. I think catechisms are are, are a wonderful way of uh, not only getting the basic grammar right, um, and 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 one of the things I said, kind of coming out of 2016, if if only people had paid attention to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, which explicitly rules out kind of eternal, eternal functional subordination, we wouldn't have gotten into to this mess. Uh, one of my favorite catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism, and one reason I love it is that. Um, after giving kind of the short summary of the gospel in the first several questions, when it wants to say, okay, well, what's the fullness of the gospel? What are all the things that God has promised us? It then uses the Apostles' Creed, which is a creed that has a Trinitarian framework following the baptismal command of Matthew 28, 19. It uses a Trinitarian framework to expound the gospel. Well, one thing pastors can do, because we're constantly talking about the gospel, right? I hope we are, is to make sure that when we're summarizing the gospel, our summary reflects our baptism, right? And, and, and we start to see how the creed is, is just so helpful there. Um, other examples are, you know, one of the, the things that Herman Bovink loves, Herman Bovink is one of my favorite theologians, and I imagine uh, one of y'all's as well, um, he can't help talking about baptism without citing uh, some of the historic Reformed liturgies, which are robustly Trinitarian. Talk about in baptism, God seals it to us that he 
is our Father, and that Christ is our Redeemer, and that the Spirit it dwells us. These kind of shorthand ways of, of talking about the Trinity are, are very useful. And then um, to get to, to Colin's question about songs, um, we can learn to sing about the Trinity. Uh, he mentioned holy, 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 and certainly a, a wonderful one. Uh, Wesley, isn't it, of the Father's love begotten? Um, that's one of my favorites as well. But then the Gloria Patri, uh, the doxology, uh, these are often sung every week in our churches, and they're wonderful summaries of the Trinity. I, I think part of part of the, the thing, Justin, is, is maybe adjusting our expectations of what we're trying to do. Um, sometimes we worry because we can't explain these terms. We can't explain how the Trinity works. And, you know, we just said, don't use any of those analogies. They're going to get you in trouble. Then, then people say, oh, oh, what can I do? But, but the, the goal in, in, in really sound Trinitarian theology is, is not to be able to explain it. But it, if I can use the metaphor, it's to be able to follow the tune, right? It, it's to be able to, to follow, as Kevin said earlier, to, to, to follow the grammar. And the illustration that I like to give sometimes is this. Um, you know, kids age four, five, six, they can go out and, and join the soccer team. They can play baseball. Kids walk around the house singing songs at even younger ages than that. Now, those kids don't actually have to know anything about the laws of physics that underlie baseball, to play baseball, right? They don't have to understand the laws of mathematics that lie behind musical scales and everything else to sing a tune. What do they have to do? They have to learn how to catch the tune. They have to learn how to, to follow the rules of a game. And that's really what we're trying to do in Trinitarian theology is, is follow the rules of the game, which are laid out in the way the prophets and apostles speak about our God. And, and all of the, the kind of fancy uh, Trinitarian grammar is just a, about helping people make sure they can follow along, right? They don't have to necessarily explain how it all works. None of us can do that. Uh, Augustine says, you know, uh, if you can understand it, it's not God that you're talking about. And that's certainly true when it comes to the Trinity. So I think finding different ways to, to familiarize people with the grammar, to help them see how central it really is to uh, so many aspects of our faith, those are the best things to do. And, and again, we've, we've got a number of resources, rich liturgy, liturgical resources as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, a Sunday cl school class on the Trinity, um, that wouldn't hurt along the way. So maybe to segue into the, the next section, but Fred Sanders' book on the deep things of God, yep. uh, our conversation has almost been presupposing a rich liturgical uh, historical awareness, but Fred comes at it from more of a low church perspective. And I don't know that he exactly puts it this way, but my summary of the book would be evangelicals become who you are. You are Trinitarian. As you talk about your testimony, as you experience uh, God, as you sing your hymns, you are Trinitarian. You just don't realize it now. Let's let's put some teeth on that and uh, flesh that out because you are Trini a Trinitarian people. So yeah, uh, that's a great segue. We've already mentioned some hymns and catechesis. Scott, other resources? You do have a helpful section in the back of the book listing some other resources. So feel free to mention a couple of those or other ones. Books, articles, chapters, hymns, songs, um, Schoolhouse Rock, Three is a Magic Number. Uh, what resources would you recommend for learning the Trinity and developing uh, our sense of the tune? Yeah, well, I'm assuming most listeners have seen this, but if they haven't, they need to see the Lutheran satire video <laughs> yeah. on uh, St. Patrick's Bad Trinitarian Analogies. That's the one my kids have always loved. And in fact, you know, they still to this day will point out if someone's committing the error of partialism, Patrick. You know, oh, come uh, on, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Modalism. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that, that's a great resource. Yeah, um, in terms of books, uh, Justin mentioned Fred Sanders, The Deep Things of God. That is a, a wonderful introduction to the Trinity that tries to begin with our practical experience of of just being converted, um, but of also things like prayer and Bible study 
in how if we reflect upon these basic Christian practices, we're already um, engaging the Trinity. And so thinking about the Trinity just only helps us better appreciate what we're, what we're doing there. Um, a number of, of other helpful resources, um, Herman Bavink's uh, The Wonderful Works of God, which has just been released in a new edition. I really like his chapter on the Trinity. Um, and that's a shorter piece that's just going to give you very sound biblical summary of the doctrine. Uh Brandon Crow and Carl Truman edited a book a few years back called The Essential Trinity, which has chapters on the Trinity in the Old Testament, but then also the Trinity in each New Testament book, along with some other uh, summary practical chapters. That's a really nice resource for, um, for really seeing how integral the Trinity is to Scripture. And if I were I want one way to, to come back to, to Justin's question from earlier. If I were preaching on any book in the New Testament, part of my preparation for preaching would be to read whatever chapter from the, the Crow and Truman book deals with the Trinity in that book of the Bible. So I'm preaching the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read the chapter on the Trinity in Mark. And that will help me think of, okay, well, how does this gospel as a whole present the Trinity? And, and maybe I can just weave it into my sermons without having a distinct sermon on the Trinity. Um, beyond that, I, I think that C.S. Lewis's advice of reading older works is good advice. And I think that folks will find with some of them, um, they might not be as challenging as one first suspects. So, Gregory of Nazianzus, Five Theological Orations. This is a series of sermons published right around the time of the Council of Constantinople, which is the council where we really get what we call the Nicene Creed. Um, and these sermons are on the Trinity. They're rich. They're wonderful. And what they show us is how the fathers aren't just kind of philosophizing about God, but they're engaging in exegesis, and they're defending our common salvation, and that's why they care about talking about the Trinity. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of good works out there. I can keep going. Yeah, I mean, a few others. I just to name a couple of your other ones, Scott, uh, that you were a part of, retrieving eternal generation. That's specifically on that doctrine, mm -hmm. but that was really helpful from a couple of years ago. The book. Uh, this was one of the ones you did with with Kostenberger on uh, Trinity and John. Yep. So I just finished yep. preaching through John for a couple of years, and that was one of the books that I would always look in. What, what did you two say about this particular passage to find the rich Trinitarian tapestry? Any sermons that anyone can find by Sinclair Ferguson on the Trinity? Uh, I, I don't know anyone in our day who's better at preaching, bringing you into the throne room, as it were, than Sinclair Um I know a lot of people like Michael Reeves book, uh, Robert Lethem's book on the Trinity at a, at a more, I don't want to say sophisticated because those are sophisticated guys, but I found uh, William Shedd's dogmatic theology, particularly good on the Trinity. Uh, it's going to be very finely nuanced and defined, yeah. but for someone wanting to, that's not even 201, but maybe wanting to go to 301. I, I found that really helpful uh, other suggestions, Justin? Another one that hasn't been mentioned is Phil Riken and Michael Lefebvre's uh, Our Triune God that Crossway publishes. I think Fred said that if he had to give somebody the most basic introduction to Trinitarianism, you know, you have a, uh, an older student at home or child uh, or somebody in your church who just, you know, wants to, wants to jump in, that he thinks that would be his first recommendation. Uh, so that's one that comes to mind. And then there are other books, um, you know, Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit or Greg Lanier's new book on Is Jesus Truly God, yep. looking at uh, the specific personhood work of, um, so that's obviously related to the Trinity and is Trinitarian in nature, but kind of focuses more specifically on person work, uh, ministry of, of the persons. That's great. Scott, you have been generous to give us more than an hour of your time. And uh, we we don't have people on here just uh, 
you know, Scott didn't say, Hey, can I come on and talk about your book? We said, Scott, we we're going to like your book and we do like it. So can we talk to you? So it's a genuine recommendation to get the Trinity and introduction. And, uh, it's, although it has a lot in there, it's only a hundred and it's less than 150 pages. So really commend that to our audience and perhaps a fitting way to close. You mentioned the hymn, this is anonymous, but I'm sure you all know, come thou almighty King, help us thy name to sing, help us to praise father, all glorious or all victorious come and reign over us. Ancient of days, verse two, come thou incarnate word, gird on thy mighty sword, scatter thy foes, let thine almighty aid our sure defense be made, our souls on thee be stayed, thy wonders show. In verse 3, come holy comforter, thy sacred witness bear in this glad hour. Thou who almighty art, now rule in every heart, and ne'er from us depart, spirit of power. And then a final verse, to the great one and three, eternal praises be, hence evermore, his sovereign majesty, may we in glory see, and to eternity love and adore 212 in the trinity uh psalter hymnal uh to the italian hymn very strong hymn tune and wonderful trinitarian hymn scott thank you for being with us colin and justin great to be with you guys lord willing we'll be back next week and we're hoping to come midweek with uh, a special post-election podcast if we know what uh what has happened by midweek Stay tuned and we'll see. But until then, uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever and read a good book. Mm -hmm.